Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. But he's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the earth. All vehicles, close in. Let's go. Welcome to episode 16, almost at 14. <laughs> we will be discussing, as you heard in the trailer, the original The Day the Earth Stood Still. I'm your host, Jimbo, and my co-host is... Terrence. And today we have a very special guest all the way from Austin, Indiana, I would say, or Sellersburg, wherever you're at. You can introduce yourself. This is Kyle yeah. Zayner. Zayner? Kyle Zayner, that's right, from South 
uh, East Indiana, I believe, or Southwest around yeah. there. And the Kentucky Anna in space. <laughs> it's the uh, your media luminary, 30 under 30. So, um, so if he has an accent, you can forgive him. Exactly. Or don't. It's it's your call. I'm not a cop. And uh, <laughs> This is actually, um, I guess this would be a fan pick because this is one that Kyle wanted to come up here and do the podcast on. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. We're gonna have, he's gonna have some special insight and some some of the stuff we talk about since this is one of his favorite movies. Hopefully that's the goal and it's an honor and privilege to be on here. Well, yeah, yeah, thanks for coming. Help spread man. the word. Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully we keep Terrence awake this episode too. <laughs> he looks okay. like he's, like, say, he's looking more say, dapper than yesterday. Well, okay, so I I preemptively prepared uh, when we went to the gas station earlier. I grabbed two Red Bulls and I was like, I'm gonna drink these like like the last hour or so of work. So I chugged two of those. <laughs> And then we went to breakfast, and I had, like, three cups of coffee. So I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> so I'm not- and, and I channeled my energy from the 90s and brought back a surge energy drink and drank that all the way uh, By the way, Kyle, how old are you? So people know the perspective. I'm 41. 29. I'm 29. Uh, Terrence is 29. Yeah. And Kyle Zainer, he is 25, a millennial. Terrible stuff. I mean, the um, universal this, healthcare, all these the, things. I'm the younger half terrible. of the millennial. This the ones is that exactly. actually people make fun of. This, yeah. is, this is not good. It's two <laughs> on one today, so exactly, I'm going to be, exactly. I'm about to tear you no up, too. No work, nothing. It's great. <laughs> um. All right. So, as usual, we always start off the episode by, a, I say random question, but I pretty much prepare it. So, Curveball for me. Terrence, here we go. We're yep. going to start with you, since we always like throwing you the first one. <laughs> And we'll give Kyle a little time to talk. What do you think was the best science fiction movie before Star Wars? Best sci-fi before Star Wars. Before Star Wars. Uh, Is it open up to series or is it just movies? It's only movies. Okay, only movies. That's where it lowers down my options. Uh, So help me out here. What came out before? Well, that's the thing. I'm like trying to think of what came out. Before, <laughs> well, isn't, what year does Star Wars originally come out? Nineteen seventy-seven. Nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would give you a hint. Say, there's one right on front of you, in front of the piece of paper that that's you're true. At, yeah. No, there, there's this one. Um, but as discussed, uh, or so be- before we were discussing, um, you know, the movie we were about to do this podcast for, and I was like, I, it's been a very long time since I've seen this, so I have like snippets of memories. Um, so I wouldn't be able to say that this is my favorite movie before Star Wars uh, because I don't remember it that well. Well, <laughs> let's jump I was, over I was to very Kyle because maybe your other yeah. millennial has something to say. <laughs> a bit of a millennial and cinephile of just terrible <laughs> movies I like to watch. And uh, it was actually there was a, there's a fair amount of good stuff that came out before Star Wars. Um, the first one that came to mind is probably the original adaptation of uh, War of the Worlds. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's what, yeah, I think that's like the like the most straightforward pick and uh, really just excellent story that still holds up today as well as like the current movie we're like doing. the current movie we're on right now. Day of the Earth is still like War of the Worlds. Day of the Earth is still all those movies still hold up um, as well. Come before Star Wars and I uh, really love that film altogether. So, so what, what other movies came out? Uh, I was hoping you'd list more. Um, you could probably have like <laughs> an invasion of the body snatchers or um, maybe the fifty foot tall woman. The um, foot, yeah, um, the blob. Would that be a sci-fi? Movie? This horror movie, I guess. Um, oh, Godzilla. Is that considered sci-fi? Gajera. It's created by a nuclear bomb. I consider that. <laughs> okay, like, I was thinking about that because no, you were as, no, I was. I was so, as you guys were talking about, like, oh yeah, Godzilla. But I'm like, oh, that's not that's. that's if not we're considering Godzilla, I should change my answer because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what I would pick. Uh, mm. But I, I don't really think you, it's if it's sci-fi, it's super light, like just 
because it's, it's I mean that's its own thing it's a kaiju movie there's also I like I like all those old B-rated movies you know like the Forbidden Planet and stuff like that with the robot yeah Forbidden Planet and uh, also what was the film um, Microscopic People Who Invade a Body what was that film um, Venture like Lost in Space also that series as well was came, was out before Star Wars I believe right right but, but this a is series. movies it's not a movie not yeah. TV. No. that's what I was saying when it's, it's I've, I've watched a lot of, of the series. living room Jimbo there was a movie uh, the the uh, inner inner space I think with Martin Shore where they injected him remember when they injected the spaceship or whatever in, in his yeah, body yeah the human body so but I think that was that was afterwards I think that was in the 80s oh wow so, yeah so it's hmm <laughs> alright well if you have one that we missed that maybe we forgot uh, shoot us a thing on Facebook or uh, an email we'll make sure we get it on here um, on this day we are recording this on July 10th so a couple of interesting facts that happened the July 10th the same year, July 10, 1981, The Fox and the Hound was released in theaters, as well as Escape from New York. Excellent yeah. films, both of them. Love yeah. them both. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fox and the Hound, man. Just hits you around the heart. That was yeah. a, that was my first film made me cry as a child. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely a really sad... And it's actually really interesting when you watch it when you're older, you kind of see the social commentary within the movie, and you're like, wow... Uh, this is a kids' movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely one of those movies you come back to as an adult and realize, like, oh, there was actually a lot more going on here than exactly just that story. Yeah, um, really impressive. But I liked how they were best friends. Even you know, it makes you think about they were best friends even though they were different. Exactly. Which I think you can take a lot away from that um, in today's age with racism. Exactly, uh, and that's where that the social commentary comes right. in because I think that's the story that it's telling, but uh, you know, in the form of a kids' movie. Exactly. So it's, it, loved it's, it. It's. It's always fascinating when they fit those really deep conversation social commentaries into a kid's movie. Yep. And on a sadder note, July 10, 1989, famous voice actor Mel Blanc, known for his Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, dies at the age of 81. Good old Looney Tunes. Yeah. 81. Uh, long proof of life, at least. You know. yeah. Were you even yeah. alive yet, Kyle? No. no. If you didn't. <laughs> Shut <laughs> My youth is not a hindrance. <laughs> I live longer than all of you. Well, I was going to say, at least you know more movies than Terrence of sci-fi, so it's okay. Well, it's, it's funny because, okay, so everything before, I would say, like, 70s, uh, all the old stuff I've watched is not sci-fi. Like, I'm a big sci-fi guy, but I've, I've watched old TV series like Battlestar Galactica and, like, Doctor Who and stuff. But when it comes to movies, uh, yeah, they stood still, uh, since we mentioned Godzilla and we're clumping that in, Godzilla... And, um, Did you ever see the original War of the Worlds? In War of the Worlds, that's it. That's all I've seen. So, but because I, I watched a lot of westerns, uh, huge on westerns, noir films, stuff like that. But like now that I think about, it, I'm like, wow, I kind of feel like uh, that's a head on my nerd cred there. Because I'm like, I don't, I haven't <laughs> watched really any uh, sci-fi series before before the 70s. Before so, Star so now Wars. you know that yeah. you got work to do, right? Yeah, no, it's, just like, <laughs> it's just like you go on Amazon Prime, you go like. 20 pages down, <laughs> you'll find all the movies from the 1920s to the 50s that are just not worth watching, but you still do it. You still got to do it, <laughs> you still for, do it. Yeah. Um, for the nerd cred. For yeah. the credit, yes. <laughs> all right, so we're going to go ahead and jump into this. Uh, the original of the day the earth stood still from 1951, I do believe. So, yep. Terrence, if you want to go ahead and take away. And Kyle, if you uh, want to interject anything anytime in here, just 
I feel will when appropriate, and I feel like it. I'll be all right. <laughs> all right, yeah. let's do it. So, so day of the Earth sits still. Release date, December 25th, 1951, in Brazil. So this released in Brazil first before it made its way over here to the States. Uh, budget, $1.2 million estimated. When you convert that, uh, that is $11.8 million estimated. Uh, directed, by Ro- directed by Robert Wise, produced by Julian Baustein, screenplay by Edmund H. North, Based on Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates. So I have either of you guys read the book? I've actually, I, I own the book, but I have not read it yet. Um, it's one of those ones that's in your collection. You're like, I'll get it. I'll, yeah, I'll get around to this someday. And then well, like you can see my collection by. over here. There's a bunch of stuff over here on this. <laughs> yes, yeah, same here. It's just like, you're <laughs> like, man, this is going to be a really good decoration for my bookshelf. It's going to be great. <laughs> and uh, it stays there. Um, the only fun fact I know about the book itself is that um, they were only, um, what was his name again? Harry Bates was only paid $500 for the rights of the film. Yep. I'm sure you have that in your notes I there. Do. And uh, that's <laughs> just incredible. But in 1951. Yeah. But even then, still, like, that's for for the rights to adapt to a movie. That is a uh, pretty slim. <laughs> right. Even for 1951 money. I mean, maybe he thought it like wouldn't do well. That's happened a lot. Yeah. Like, well, we, oh, it's yeah. like we were talking with the Princess Bride, where uh, the the guy was having trouble getting the movie made, so he bought the rights back instead yeah. of the book. You know. Yeah. Incredible different like just money making talent just like yeah, you know, everything was thrown together it's just smaller budget right. compared to nowadays where everything is like in the triple figures of hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny we had, we had a small conversation about that last episode. <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was there too. All right, uh, tech specs runtime one hour and thirty two minutes. That's ninety two minutes. Sound mix mono uh, western electric recording. Color black and white. Aspect ratio three point. I'm sorry one point three seven uh, by one. Film length two thousand five hundred twenty five meters. That's nine reels. Uh, negative format, 35 millimeter. Cinematographic process, spherical. Printed film format, 35 millimeters. And now off to the fun part that I get to do, and that is the awards. Golden Globes, USA, 1952. They won the Golden Globe for Best Film Promoting International Understanding. Nominee, Golden Globe, Best Original Score, Bernard Herrmann. Then, uh, National Film Preservation Board, USA 1995, winner, National Film Registry, Online Film and Television Association, 2010, they also won uh, the OFTA Film Hall of Fame Motion Picture. And that's it for awards. Even though it's a short list, they did one, at least win uh, in each of those lists. So that's nice, right? Yeah. And uh, one of them would say it's completely deserved. So yeah, like right, that exactly. Year. Yeah. <laughs> and so now off to the synopsis. An alien lands on Earth. Telling it, to, telling it to live peacefully or be destroyed as a danger to other planets. Dun, dun, dun. Monsters. <laughs> Space movies are good. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into the cast. Um, Michael Rennie as Klaatu. Is that how you say it? Go ahead, Kyle. Correct. Klaatu. Klaatu. Yeah, the full. Okay. <laughs> uh, Patricia Neal as Helen Benson. Uh, Billy Gray as Bobby Benson. Hugh Marlowe as Tom Stevens. Sam Jaffe as Professor Jacob Barnhart, Francis Bavir, a Baver as Mrs. Barley, Locke Martin as Gort, Frank Conroy as Mr. Harley, Edith Evanson as Mrs. Crockett, who was the landlady even though she was uncredited, and Tyler McVeigh as Brady, who was also uncredited. And as you know, Kyle, we like to do a biography, um, and I, I really like to do it on older movies like this because a lot of people don't. Number one, don't even know who the actor is, but they also did some pretty cool stuff, as you're about to see. Mm-hmm. So I chose uh, Michael Rennie, uh, Claw 2, 
He was born August 25th, 1909 in Bradford, Yorkshire, England in the United Kingdom. He died on June 10th, 1971 in Harrogate, Yorkshire, England, UK of emphysema. His first acting role, remember how I said everything ties together, Terrence? Let's hear it. First acting role, a stand-in for Robert Young in Secret Agent in 1936, directed by Sir Alfred Hitchcock. There we go. (laughs) Interesting. He played the Sandman in two episodes of the Batman 1966 TV show. So, wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously a director that we covered and a movie that we've covered. Everything show. comes together. Well, you know, well yeah. we did. Yeah. Everyone knew everyone. <laughs> now, this is the most interesting fact I found for this guy. Uh, Rennie joined the Royal Air Force in 1941, training as a fighter pilot in the U.S. under the Arnold Plan, while at Napier Field in Dothan, Alabama. For his advanced flight training, he was asked by a fellow trainee, Scotsman Jack, or Scotsman Jack Morton, what he did in civilian life. Rini told Morton and the other pilots gathered around that he was a movie actor. They stared at him in disbelief, then broke out in a chorus of laughters. A couple of nights later, Rini and his classmates went into town to watch a movie, Ships with Wings, in 1941. Not long into the movie, and much to the surprise of those seated with him, Rini appeared on the screen as Royal Navy Pilot Lieutenant Maxwell. That's great. (laughs) So he's like, ha-ha, I got you. Yeah. One other fun fact about this film that I've also read about Michael Rennie is that this was actually the last film he was the lead role in um, from going forward. He had a few more roles afterwards, but they were all only supporting roles. Interesting little fun fact. Hmm. Uh, and I found a quote. Uh, Some people making pictures in Hollywood are not outstanding for brains. How their minds work, I can't understand. <laughs> so he's, I can not, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's, he's not wrong at all. And now we're going to go ahead and jump into the unknown facts and trivia. Locke Martin, the doorman at Grom's Chinese Theater, was cast because of his nearly seven-foot height. However, he was not a physically strong man and could not actually carry Patricia Nill, and so had to be aided by wires and shots from the back where he's carrying her. It's actually a lightweight dummy in his arms. He also had difficulty with a heavy gort suit and could only stay in it for about a half hour at a time. So that's the second time where we had someone who couldn't lift someone's the Andre the Giant yep. just last episode. Do you also have the effects about the court suit itself, about how it was designed and how many versions they had? Hey, how about we get through this first and then we'll go into anything <laughs> I, I missed. I just want to test you too. Okay, go for it. Yeah, well, Jimbo, it's your we, podcast. We have, we you know right. I have like 15 pages of notes in front of me. I'm I sure we might have a special guest. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Terrence, I'm sorry you've been replaced by <laughs> this guy. Uh, fourth, at, at least I'm not stepping on your toes. Hey, I'm glad you for being the more mature millennial here. <laughs> we got the younger version. First of the, time for everything. Uh, to give the appearance of seamlessness to the spaceship, the cracks around the door was filled with putty, then painted over. When the door opened, the putty was torn apart, making the door seem to simply appear. Hmm. Patricia Neal had admitted in interviews that she was completely unaware during the filming that the film would turn out so well and became one of the greatest science fiction classics of all time. She assumed it would be just another one of the then-current and rather trashy flying saucer films, and she found it difficult to keep a straight face while saying her lines. I love that fact about her. That's probably the best thing ever. She's like, this is just a movie I made. It's not even going to be that good. It's a silly sci-fi thing. Who cares? What's really funny is this isn't the first time we've encountered this uh, sort of like similar fact. In a lot of movies that we've covered... Uh, sometimes they're like, this isn't going to go anywhere, and then it becomes a big hit. Or uh, or they just out, there's other actors who would have been in the movie, but that down outright uh, um, 
deny them like they don't want to be in the movie because they're like yeah. that's not going to be good at, why would I be in that well, especially movie especially like early in the industry like any like high concept film like actors just treated the whole thing as kind of like a ridiculous like pay for gig like a small gig to do itself and actually not like a serious film that could get them rewards and all kind of stuff so it's always amazing hearing actors and like, like I had no idea this well, one people it's like, like it. Sean Connery Sean Connery um, was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings he said but he turned it down because he didn't understand the, the significance plot, the, of the, it. Yeah. The, the plot, you know, he didn't understand the movie. Yeah, and then uh, so he said when League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came around, he accepted it without even looking at it. And I was like, <laughs> I think you chose the wrong one, there, buddy. So <laughs> talk about a burn. <laughs> but I like that movie. It's, too. it's a good film, but it's still it's not it's not Rings. Rings, right? <laughs> right. Uh, Bernard Herman, which we have talked about before, a master of unconventional or of orchestrations, used two theremins to create his eerie music. One pitched higher, the other lower. Cementing the early electronic instruments association with science fiction, through the composer Ferde Grofe, had employed it a year earlier in his score to Rocket Ship XM. Dmitri Tiamakin used it for his music for The Thing from Another World. Hmm. Are you familiar so with either of those? I think yeah. from Another World I've seen, and I, I would still argue that definitely The Day the Earth Is Still was the film that popularized using the theremin in sci-fi movies and movies in general for sure. That's definitely the way I see it because like that's the film that like they made such extensive use of the theremin and did it so much better than the way the original film did that I feel like this is the film that brought it forward. Of just like if you if you hear a theremin, it's because of Dave Travis is still. Okay, let's <laughs> ask this: Do you know when Roswell happened? No. I do not. See, I was kind of wondering if it was before or after this movie. Pre-millennials, I'm sorry. I was going to know anything. Roswell was like the, the 60s, 40s. man. Is it the 60s or 40s? I feel like it was. I mean, we can, we can, Kyle, look it up while yeah. we're... Research on the way. No worries. <laughs> In the original short story on which the screenplay is loosely based, the robot Gort was the master. Klaatu was merely one of, of a series of doubles, or maybe clones, that died after a short time. As an homage to this film, George Lucas named three of Jabba the Hutt's alien henchmen in his Star Wars Return of the Jedi, Klaatu, Barada, and Nikto. A line that has gone on to become very famous and referenced in so many other films. Yes, as I'm getting ready to say in the next line, Kyle. And I would like you to proceed with. <laughs> actually, did you Jimbo. find out when? Actually, I did find out. The Roswell UFO incident happened in the happened in mid-1947. No particular dates given right here on the Wikipedia page. Oh, okay, nice. So but, I wonder if that's why the UFO craze took off like it did. Definitely. With all the movies. You it was know described I mean? as a flying disc, so right. it probably was the start of the genre of uh, all that kind of stuff. That makes sense. Hmm. The phrase, Klaatu Barada... Nikto has become a popular phrase among sci-fi fans over the years and has been featured in other movies such as The Army of Darkness in 1992. The line was also used in an episode of The Rockford Files. Jim Rockford says it's a huge henchman uh, of the episode's bad guy. One of the reasons that Michael Rennie was cast as Klaatu was because he was generally unknown to American audiences and would be more readily accepted as an alien than a more recognizable actor. Studio head Daryl F. Zanuck had shown the script to Spencer Tracy, who was eager to play the role. Producer Julian Blostein objected, saying that the audience would have numerous expectations about the character upon seeing an actor of such repute uh, emerging from the flying saucer. Blostein knew that Zanuck had the ultimate control, and if he insisted, Blostein would either have to resign or make the movie in an unsatisfactory way. Fortunately, Zanuck agreed, and Rennie was cast instead. The Army refused to cooperate after reading the script. The studio then approached the National Guard, which had no qualms about seeing the Army depicted in a less-than-flattering light, had gladly offered their cooperation. <laughs> wow. That's great. We always talk about, you know, 
petty grievances. Conflict, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it, it comes up almost every other episode. It does. It really does. And, and But this, this, is, this is the Army and National Guard. It's, it's more than just two actors. <laughs> it's oh, yeah, very, yeah. very funny. <laughs> To increase the sense of reality, some of the most famous broadcast journalists of the time were hired to do cameos as themselves. These included Gabriel Heater, H. V. Kaltenborn, Drew Pearson, and Elmer Davis. Which gives it a really good, excellent reflection of like how the media was depicted at the time and how you can relate that to today of seeing how the broadcasters handled yes, the situation. They didn't have fake news. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have fake news going on there or just you know, how everyone fixes it. It's very interesting scene. It gives it a very documentary-like feel. Ah, uh, the time before social media. <laughs> <laughs> when you could, the good uh, old days. <laughs> when you couldn't get the spoiler of the movie 24 hours before it even came out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Doubles the were boy. used for Klaatu and Bobby in long shots of them walking around Washington, D.C., in reality, none of the principal cast ever went to Washington, and the scenes with Klaatu and Bobby at the Lincoln Memorial and at Arlington Cemetery were shot in front of background screens using footage shot by the second unit crew in Washington, D.C. Hmm. This is ranked number five on the American Film Institute's list of the ten greatest films in the genre sci-fi in June 2008. According to Danny Elfman, Bernard Human's score inspired him to become a composer. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, not bad. To depict the seamless closing of the ship and its ramp, they just reversed the film of the shot of the ship's ramp <laughs> door opening. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That was definitely <laughs> yeah. just Bad lemons and lemonades, really. Yeah, I mean, I just wish that the remake was good. I feel like the remake had a lot more greater ambitions, and if it nailed them, it would have been the better film, but it just fell short in right. many ways. You know, I still like it a lot, though. I, you know, uh, But I, it's not this. It's not this, but also I still I still really do enjoy it. I think Keanu Reeves get it was an interesting adaptation of that film itself, not as much as a remake. Well, it's like War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise, the remake. I actually prefer the remake to the original. Oh yeah, okay, so you're done. A millennial, <laughs> and I'm off the show. It was great seeing everyone. And that's our last guest. <laughs> Um, although he was already signed to play the Einstein-like Professor Barnhart, a part not dissimilar to one he played in the studio's Gentleman's Agreement three years earlier, the studio wanted to replace Sam Jaffe as a result of his liberal politics, which made him suspect to the anti-communist witch hunts and blacklists uh, that were then underway. Producer Julian Blostein appealed to studio chief Daryl F. Zanuck. Zanuck allowed Jaffe to play the role, but it would be Jaffe's last Hollywood film until the late 1950s. Which is kind of interesting because, like, the film itself is about the Cold War crisis right. and about trying to defuse those tensions. <laughs> and that film is about it. And they're still having a problem with an actor who's, like, you know, suspected to be a communist. I'm not surprised, though, because, like, a lot of actors were just randomly flagged uh, to be, you know, communists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Red Scare, you know, right? So, uh, not surprised at all, really. Uh, and then it was almost at, at a point where um, it was like that would be like a threat. You know what I mean? Like if you're not agreeing with somebody in Hollywood, be like, hey, uh, we can blacklist you. We, we can yeah, blacklist exactly. you. Yeah, and, but just, like it's, it's still like it fits the height of irony to have the film about diffusing Cold War crisis. But also, I don't know if – yeah, I think it would happen in this time period. But back then, actors were pretty much assigned to – or signed contracts to the – Studios. Oh, the production companies themselves. Right. Yeah. So it's not like you could go find work somewhere else, you know, if he was under contract. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're out, you're out. That's just how it goes. Right. Yeah. The scene of the large crowd fleeing the saucer area after Gord appears is all too obviously sped up film, uh, making the shot look unnatural. The reason for the sped up film effect was explained by director Robert Wise in an interview. It seems that despite much pleading and cajoling from him, the crowd of inexperienced extras portraying the saucer onlooker simply wouldn't move away from the saucer quickly enough to look panicky and convincing. 
After several takes, Weiss finally had to move on with filming and reluctantly allowed the scene to be sped up in post-production, knowing that the end result would look strange. (laughs) Harry Bates was paid a mere $500 by 20th Century Fox for the rights to a short story, Farewell to the Master. There you go. Yes. See? You had it. I had it. You had it. I will say on on that previous note, uh, it's very interesting that that's sort of an acting exercise now, is... um, if they're trying to pick extras or even if you're trying to get like a really, really minor role, uh, depending on the movie, that they'll be like, okay, there's pretend there's like a huge boulder, like react to it and all, all this other stuff. And like if the more convincing you are, the better, right? <laughs> um, I, just, I just thought that was interesting. I wonder if it kind of maybe came from this. You know what I mean? Like Good. maybe people were just not reacting enough. And like okay, well let's 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 like one, these people first. And one then. of the tipping points of like, hey, we need to actually get competent extras for our crew to exactly. actually get this kind yeah, of job done. Exactly, this is unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> Klaatu adopts the name Carpenter while hiding from the authorities. Robert Wise, in a non too subtle nod to the film's intentional Christ allegory. Hmm. It certainly is a, a very much of a retelling of a. It was like if you wanted to like visit like Gort as possibly being like a, an Old Testament um, interpretation of God, and then having um, Carpenter being inter- interpreted as Christ, and maybe the Almighty Spirit at the end being yeah. whole, you know Holy Spirit kind of idea. Um, I did an interesting Trinity ideas of retelling the Christian stories and science mm-hmm. fiction. Love that. <laughs> the spaceship was made of wood, wire, and plaster of Paris. Sturdy stuff. Do what? Effectively <laughs> time. They yeah. got it done. They got it done, though. I'm sure it was a lot less time-consuming than what? Oh, know, yeah. Making an aluminum cheaper. shell or anything like that or a helium balloon. <laughs> <laughs> People have found fault with the concept that no one knows what Klaatu looks like since all of his doctors, nurses, and Mr. Harley from the White House have seen him in the hospital and would be able to recognize him easily. In fact, there was a scene which was cut in which Klaatu is taken into police cu- uh, police station as part of a roundup of all men in Washington, D.C. between the ages of 30 and 60 who could conceivably be the spaceman. Knowing that he has no identification to prove he's Major Carpenter, Klaatu knows that he will be found out if he is interviewed by government agents. As he contemplates an escape from the police station, the Army MP appears with orders to take Klaatu to Professor Barnhart, who has asked that he be found. This explains why Klaatu is taken from the boarding house by a plainclothes government agent, Mr. Brady, but later enters Barnhart's home and accompanied by an army captain. Director Robert Wise later said that if he disrupted the flow of the film and that the audience wanted to see the meeting between Klaatu and Barnhart more than they needed to see the scene in which Klaatu narrowly avoids being identified, but that explanation for the sequence ex- uh, excision seems disingenuous. The likelier explanation is that Wise and the studio were afraid that it would prompt audience to ask why, when Klaatu was in army custody, it never occurred to anyone to take a photo of him, which is, in fact, a gaping hole in the film's story. I think also, like, one of the benefits, though, is that the whole film takes place over a very short time frame, only, like, a couple of days or even three days at tops. I don't know the entire timeline of it. So it kind of makes sense to, to my sense that, like, they couldn't disperse that information as quickly as possible to be like, hey, this is what Klaatu looks like, this is his rough description or something like that, to in order to, like, make sure they don't take me to custody immediately. Right, but you got to remember, back then, newspapers were something really big, and they would print those things off daily, you know what I mean? So yeah. they had... But then again, if you're rounding up everybody, every man in Washington, D.C., yeah, but also the aspect, though, of, like the military and the government was trying to instill normalcy during this time of crisis because they didn't want everyone going rioting in the streets, basically. And they saw, yeah. yeah. So it was like, you know, there's a little bit of column A, column B, and like, yeah, it is a little bit of a plot hole, but it's not glaring to any degree. You can still enjoy the film without even thinking about it. Yeah. Well, now I will. <laughs> it's, it's all your fault. <laughs> Writer Edmund H. North was a former Army officer who wrote the script in response to the proliferation of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. 
The screenplay was based on the story Farewell to the Masters by Harry Bates. It was originally published in the pulp magazine Astounding Science Fiction. This was the second big-budget science fiction feature film to be released by a major American studio since Just Imagine in 1930. The first was RKO's The Thing from Another World, which was released about three months earlier. Whether the makers of the movie intended it or not, there is a striking resemblance between Klaatu and the head of the Manhattan Project, Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was known to make corrections on the blackboards of theoreticians at the project, similar to the way Klaatu corrects the works of Professor Barnhart. Oppenheimer's otherworldly brilliance associated with destructive power that could uh, threaten the existence of the world seems like more than a coincidence. According to shooting a script on the DVD... Uh, special features. Significant, significant dialogue between Klaatu and Helen Benson was cut. That dialogue makes it clear that they had developed warm feelings for each other, a bond that is closer than the friendship they have in the final cut of the movie, although it remains unfulfilled. When Klaatu tells her that he and Gore will be leaving soon, she tells him how much she and Bobby will miss him. The thought of leaving her and Bobby behind is equally difficult for Klaatu. Robert Wise was attracted to the project because of its overt anti-military stance and also because he believed in UFOs. This was Michael Rennie's third film for 20th Century Fox, though he was under contract to the studio for seven years and had important support, supporting roles in all of, of all of them. Klaatu was the only lead role he was ever given. It's weird to think that 20th Century, Fo- uh, 20th Century Fox is, is no longer... Thing. Oh, a Disney company or something like that now, or is it is it a Disney subsidiary now? Um, it's subsidiary know. Disney. It's subsidiary Disney. It's Everything Disney is now. Home, yeah. It's like forty percent of the market is all Disney movies now. And it, it, when in doubt, it's, it's Disney. Really recent. It's just really weird to think about. It's like wow, uh, not that long ago, Fox was a thing, and now Fox is not a thing. They'll probably keep the name. Probably. Uh, yeah. Bernard Herman's music for the film is scored for two thermomins, pianos, harps, different electrical organs. Percussion, amplified solo strings, and a large brass section, including four tubas. I wonder, like outside of sci-fi, what else used the theremin? You know, like what? Like I don't, I don't. From memory, I, I can't remember too many movies that use the theremin. I mean, that's a very unique instrument at the get-go. Uh, or if it wasn't like used for a soundtrack, or if it was used for like an ambient noise or something yeah. like that, of making an environment feel more surreal, maybe. I think I think it would probably be in maybe a thing where drugs were involved. You know, yeah, having a drug tip, taking LSD, all those kind of things. Yeah. Like it totally is appropriate for that for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Uh, in the opening title montage of astro photographs representing Klaatu's trip to Earth, the last object seen before Earth and Moon come into view is the Eagle Nebula, Messier 16, and the constellation Serpent, and is centered on the Pillars of Creation, an object that was later captured by the Hubble Space Telescope in an iconic image that became synonymous with the resolving power of this telescope. The film was shot on the 20th Century Fox backlot, which is now an upscale office complex known as Century City. (laughs) There you go. That's how it goes. In the original story, Farewell to the Master, the robot's name was... G-N-U-T Gnut Not Gort <laughs> During the early phase of pre-production For the day the earth stood still 20th Century Fox studio chief Daryl F. Zanuck Suggested Jack Palance for the role of the robot Gort The role was eventually filled by a much taller non-actor In the scenes of Gort carrying both Helen Benson and Klaatu Up the ramp and into the ship Lightweight look-alike dummies were used Because of Lockmar's inability to actually carry either actor himself which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing of just having 
I mean, it, it didn't say he had back problems or anything. It was just like, yeah, I can't do uh, yeah, it. Yeah, 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 he was just scrawny. He was kind of lanky. Yeah, you know. But yeah, the fact like carrying that whole suit itself, which I imagine was weighed a great deal. I'm not sure if they actually weighted the suit. But like, oh, it was just aluminum foil. Having, you don't know. Oh, it's just the covering aluminum foil and having to breathe through two holes. You're basically over. Like you're basically sweating like a pond in there. I'm sure and carrying the person. Yeah. That's just out of the question. Um, the crowds were made up of local government employees, including some from the FBI offices, who were asked to participate in the film. No releases were required of employers hmm. or employees sorry because the stationary gort statue which was several inches taller than martin could not stand on the angled ramp lock martin had to wear the gore suit in the background during the final sequence martin who was frail had to wear the, the suit for so long that he began having spasms in his arms during Clateau's final speech gort's arm can be seen moving slightly <laughs> There you go. Yeah. So, well, I mean, like all the like all the history too. Just like you know, like a lot of these actors have to be in like the full body suits. Like never, like they can't go for like more than like thirty minutes. Like same thing like C three PO in the middle of the desert. Oh, yeah. That actor like just like yeah. But hey, and we, even we from, were talking about yeah. from the Wizard of Oz. Wizard they were in Oz. that thing all day. Yeah. So, yeah <laughs> we don't want to hear anything. But also like horror stories in there too. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, never uh, good so, ever. I mean, one of the things that we went over should, should watch the episode first off. Listen, <laughs> listen, to, yeah, listen yeah, to the episode. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, but with the lion costume. Yeah, he had, he had to constantly come out of that because they, they had to, or didn't they fan him? And then they had to, they they had had to two, like. Uh, two people that actually would sw- uh, dry it out because yeah. he sweated so much. Same thing like Godzilla suits and all those other kind of things. Like, they're just like, man, <laughs> toughest job in the world, it sounds like. I can imagine doing them. Yeah. <laughs> Daryl F. Zanuck was the one who first suggested Michael Rennie for the part of Klaatu after having cast him in two smaller roles in the studio's films over the previous year. There were three different versions of Lock Martin's foam gort suit. One with lacings up the front for shots from behind the robot. One that laced up on the right for shots taken from the left. And one laced on the left for shots taken on the right. The seam and laces on the front of the suit may be seen in the shot where he first starts to carry Helen to the ship. Okay, so that answers the question of what the suit was made of. Foam. Yeah, foam, yeah. yeah a foam. And there's three different ones, according to that. Um, the first actor... To whom the role of Klaatu was actually offered was Claude Rains, who wanted to accept it but had to decline because of a prior commitment on Broadway. Decades later, Robert Weiss would remark, fortunately, we couldn't get him. In addition to the two Gort costumes, oh, I guess there was only two. I've heard conflicting reports on that. Like, well, there was two or three. Yeah. Um, costumes worn by Lock Martin, a fiberglass statue of the robot, several inches taller than Lock Martin in his foam suit was also made for shots in which the robot was to be stationary. A large bust of just the robot's head was a remote-controlled visor was used for close-ups of Gore f- uh, firing his death ray. <laughs> or melting ray, or whatever yeah. you want to call it. I mean, you don't, they don't, I don't believe they ever kill anyone in the film, do they? Outside of uh, Klaatu himself. I'm not sure. Technically dies. It's been a while. I don't believe they kill, I don't believe they kill anyone besides Klaatu, and then he, of course, comes back. Spoilers haven't seen it. <laughs> One of the more distinctive and subliminally eerie effects in this film is a musical organ chord held on two different notes, mixed in with the engine and wind sound effects of Klaatu's saucer as it flies over the D.C. area at the beginning of the story. Lux Radio Theater broadcast a 60-minute radio adaptation of the film on January 4, 1954, with Michael Rennie reprising his role. Have you guys ever listened to any of the old theater like that? On the radio, the radio shows like War of the Worlds was okay. Yeah, I, I actually listened to um, to Tarzan on the radio, uh, the old radio Tarzan. Right. Uh, that's a fun one. Um, 
some of the noir detective stuff. Yeah. But but back then when they did like I believe I read a story one time when they did War of the Worlds. Okay, yeah. By Orson Welles or whatever that they actually thought the Earth was being invaded because <laughs> yeah, believe, yeah. They, that's what they would do. They there was no TV, so they yeah. would listen to the radio shows and they was like, oh no, we're under attack. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I've listened to the World of Worlds recording as well. The, got that. It was pretty good, man. Yeah. I ain't gonna lie. It's your recording. Also, like, in my list of that, I was just like, how did anyone think it was, like, actually real? Because, like, it sounds like interviews from, like, the past, basically, in that yeah. whole yeah. Um, radio play, but still. It's, I think my favorite one would be yeah, uh, um, Most Dangerous Game. They had a, 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 a radio version of that. Of what? Most Dangerous Game, where a uh, rich guy uh, captures a dude and he's like, I've hunted everything except man. And then he sends them off and... Sends them off know. to the forest and then yeah. hunts them down. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, sir, you're being hunted. <laughs> I might have... It's a good movie, familiar. too. A gap in the cultural knowledge you have. You must go back and re <laughs> must this. be a millennial thing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you, you've movie. had a millennial moment, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> At the boarding house, Mrs. Barley is played by Francis Bavier and Mr. Kroll is played by Olan Sewell. The two actors would team up again about 10 years later on The Andy Griffith Show in 1960, Bavier as Andy's Aunt B, and Soul as John Masters, the Mayberry Choir Director. I didn't real. I, 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 in hindsight, I didn't see it now, of course, but like I didn't realize that this actually came out before The Andy Griffith Show in the first place, but I recognized its actors immediately from that show. <laughs> <laughs> Three funny. years after this was made, it was adapted for the Lux Radio Theater. Michael Rennie and Billy Gray reprised the roles. Gene Peters played the role of Helen. The film takes place in July 1951, so that's kind of cool that it was take, actually taking place the year it came out. Oh, yeah. At seven minutes, a uh, radio DJ can be seen broadcasting from a mic labeled WMAL. WMAL is a radio station in Washington, D.C. in continuous service since 1925. Hmm, incredible. Right. The DVD commentary is done by director Robert Wise and is joined by fellow director Nicholas Meyer. Wise directed Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, and Meyer directed the sequel, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982, as well as Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country in 1991. A long legacy of sci-fi classics. <laughs> Terrence is not a Star Trek fan. I never said that. I said I haven't watched it. Mm, Terrence, you're still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that is wrong. Prepare to be a simulator. <laughs> All of this, we are going to do that. It was a fan request that we do Star Trek First Contact, so I already have the notes Amazing. done. I can't wait for that. I'd love to put that possibly. <laughs> Come on. Uh, all of the scenes of Helen Benson and Klaatu in the taxi also feature footage from the second unit of Washington, D.C. as we see background vehicles in the rear and side windows of the taxi. The name Richard Carlson, another leading sci-fi actor of the 1950s, appears at the bottom of the glass door to Hugh Marlowe's office. Some reference works state that The Adventures of Superman star George Reeves appeared as a television news reporter with eyeglasses in one sequence. This is not true. The actor playing the role bears no resemblance to Reeves, and in a 1995 interview with Reeves biographer Jim Beaver, director Robert Wise stated unequivocally that it is not Reeves in the role. It appears that someone jumped to conclusions based on the image of a reporter wearing glasses and thus resembling roughly the image of Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent. Reeves had nothing to do with the film in any capacity. That would be crazy, though, if that's how they were. Like, <laughs> well, what a crazy just reference. Yeah, an alien movie yeah, right? and, uh, yeah. featuring, yeah, Superman as a... What was Superman's original name? Clark Kent. No, um, his, his alien George name. Reeves. George, oh. George Reeves, Superman's alien name, though, wasn't it? Uh, it wasn't no, like it was K-L. Right? Kal-El. Yeah, Kal-El. Kal-El. Yeah, Klaatu, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> Dragon Ball, Kakarot. <laughs> Everyone needs a K to be an alien. Uh, included among the American <laughs> Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest American movies. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. We, we've, we've done a handful of those now. 
Yeah. I, I feel sooner or later when we as we're going down the podcast, we'll hit all 100 eventually. <laughs> yeah, maybe a few years from now. Yeah, this is great. We have the definitive list of movies here <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, Lock Martin uh, was perhaps discovered working as a doorman, but this film was definitely not his first. His first movie role was credited supporting uh, Sultan's Garden, Lost in a Harem, 1944. A few more movies in a theatrical comic, comedy duo with a midget traveling with Spike Jones's stage show followed. Then he helped create the immortal Gord. We've all been there. <laughs> the cover of Ringo Starr's 1974 album, Good Night Vienna, features Ringo and Gord. Huh. Huh. That's great. That's great. I agree with Terrence. <laughs> I was like, man, they're not thinking like <laughs> scared. Mind melding has begun. <laughs> My thoughts are your thoughts. <laughs> exactly. He wouldn't get it though because exactly, he hasn't right? seen it. Yeah. <laughs> You're so uh, wrong, Terrence. Included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die. So I agree. Uh, in 1951, 20th Century Fox theatrically distributed this uh, with a short film, The Guest, 1951. Never seen it. Me either. Hmm. Klaatu leaves the address of 1412 Harvard Street, North uh, NWDC, for Professor Barnhart. This is a real address. <laughs> so I wonder how much mail they get. Yeah, oh, was, my gosh. Was, yeah. Fan mail or just random people showing up now still yeah. <laughs> to this day. Klaatu was born in 1873. Anne Baxter was originally cast in the role of Helen Benson. That would make sense, actually. Yeah, I didn't consider the fact, but yeah, you said like, he's like 71 in the movie or something like that. Yeah. The character. When Bobby and Klaatu visit the saucer together, the black silhouettes of soldiers standing behind Gord are mannequins. You can see a mannequin at the mark 32 minutes and 35 seconds up close near the edge of the left frame. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> Original broadcast on network television during the first season of NBC Saturday Night at the Movies on March 3rd, 1962, the first primetime network movie series which debuted in the fall of 1961. Patricia Neal was born in 1926, and Billy Gray was born in 1938. The movie was made in 1951. In real world years, at the time of filming, Helen would have been 26 and Bobby 13. Hmm. Robert Benson Sr. was born on Virginia, or in Virginia on April 10, 1916, and was killed in the landing at Anzio Beach on January 29, 1944. In addition to WMAL's TV camera, the man interviewing the crowd has WEAM on his microphone, another popular DC radio station. This was released on Mike Johansson's birthday. Klaatu established that he traveled to planet Earth from 250 million miles away. 250 million miles is equivalent to 402 million kilometers and .00004 light years. It would locate Klaatu's home uh, in a point between Mars and Jupiter inside the solar system. It's actually less than the distance from the Earth to the sun itself. So really, it was just a very... Uh, this was, uh, I think, like six years before the launch of Sputnik itself. So people didn't realize that like space travel required much greater speeds and measurements of uh, distance oh, yeah. overall to counter alien life. So pretty funny. <laughs> and it's always interesting seeing, like, uh, you know, with older sci-fi things, how they come up with, you know, certain numbers and things and... Later on, you find out, oh, that's not as much as we thought. And then, like, you have to up the scale of uh, as their science fiction becomes as, a reality. Yeah, yeah. exactly. As, as more science fiction comes out, you really gotta up the scale because it's like, okay, now we know this, so now we need to, we need bigger numbers. Keanu <laughs> refilm Johnny Mnemonic. He's like, he's like, he has a supercomputer in his head, a thousand megabytes of hard drive. Yeah. It's great, <laughs> just great. <laughs> Yeah, and they say that we have more, uh, more. Our, our our phones are more capable than what they sent the man, moon, man to the moon. Man to the moon, yep. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not moon to the man. That'd be a lot more scary. <laughs> <laughs> Break down. But, but really the impressive. Star. Thanos did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. 
Originally, Klaatu's post-death resurrection at the end of the movie was meant to be permanent, reinforcing his godlike powers. But at the time, the brain office, the film industry censors didn't like the ending, suggesting it was too left-wing, and insisted that director Robert Wise and writer Edmund H. North put in the line, that power reserved for the almighty spirit. Both Wise and North hated the line and thought it was completely uh, inappropriate, negating the concept of Klaatu's race being all-knowing and all-powerful. But the studio wouldn't back them up, and they were forced to put it in. So basically, he was the genie in Aladdin. <laughs> the all-powerful genie. <laughs> it's an interesting compromise, I think, though, because also it, it kind of plays in both ways. I think it can work because on one hand, he is relating to the Almighty himself and God, but also um, the depiction of Klaatu is himself as of a almost religious figure of Godly himself. Right. So it kind of works in both both places. I think actually works. Yeah. Uh, in the original script, Klaatu's resurrection scene was to have taken place in the spacecraft's medical lab, not the main control room. The manner in which Gort revives Klaatu was also written completely different. You know, some of this stuff I'd like to see or read, whatever, the different versions that they had. Um, and it was like we, was, we talked in one of our episodes about, you know, like um, they cut scenes, but then what happened to the film? You know what I mean? Is it yeah. stored in a vault somewhere? Uh, well, okay. So where's the original documents? All these right. Yeah. Well, here's the hard part with with writing because um, I, I do know a chunk about this. Is to there wouldn't be really anything left from all the if it never left the writing room because like when they're in the writing room there there is like thousands and no one keeps track of how many different edits there are because there'll be a scene that'll stay in there for like some time and be like okay no that scene doesn't work and then it comes out and then this just happens over and over and over until they hit the quintessential perfect moment uh, in their script. It's crazy stuff. In the scene where Gord is seen carrying Klaatu's body inside the ship, Michael Rennie was actually sitting on a dolly that is unseen by the camera since Lockmart and Gord was unable to support Rennie's weight himself. Oh, here you go. Human fatalities. Two. Two. The soldiers guarding Gord. I thought they were said they were just knocked out. Uh, this is When the kid came back, he said that he knocked out two of the guards. Maybe okay. he was more powerful than yeah, he thought. Exactly. He got, they got knocked out. <laughs> For good. He must, he must have been a millennial. <laughs> they got knocked down six feet under. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Gork uh, is hardcore. <laughs> three muzzle flashes, one report. In the close-up of the quick-triggered soldier atop the tank turret, we see and hear him fire his pistol. But for the sharp-eyed, the wide shot of the tank crew that follows reveals the visible but silent muzzle flash of both soldiers' sidearms. Interesting. Hmm. In one scene near the end, the sound of an airplane approaching can be heard, but then there is a cut to another angle and the sound is absent. <laughs> oh, well, we're not going this way. I can't remember if that's in the initial shot of them uh, reacting to the UFO coming down or later on, but I know there's one shot where they have tanks coming in and doing like a wide left turn, and the tank, it's going so fast, they actually slide on the dirt. <laughs> and it's all, it, it was the, obviously like the coolest shot ever, just seeing tanks drifting for like a one foot. <laughs> As pointed out in an earlier goof, H.V. Calderborn refers to the beautiful spring weather, whilst later on the tag of the suit of Klaatu has borrowed shows the date 7-18-51. Bobby at one point asks his mother if he has to go to school tomorrow, and later there's another reference to his being in school. Unless Bobby has been flunking out and is attending summer school, he would not be going to school in July. He's a bad kid. <laughs> Klaatu tells Professor Barnhart that he was in room 309 of Walter Reed Hospital, but the number on his hospital uh, room door is 306. Hmm. So that's just if they had the opportunity, I wonder if they would have tried to uh, tie it in with like, Bible reference of some sort, possibly. Like, they could have. Yeah. Um, 316, 316, maybe. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
After Klaatu is shot from behind, the soldiers who examine him make no attempt to apprehend Helen, despite the fact that she was just speaking to Klaatu in full view of them and obviously knows him. When Bobby is doing his math homework, Klaatu looks over his shoulder and says, All you have to remember is, first, find the common denominator, then divide. Divisions of fractions doesn't require a common denominator. In fact, the original script says, subtract. However, Klaatu's method could work. To divide one-third by one-fourth, find the common denominator and re-express as 412 divided by 312. Then simply divide the 4 by the 3 to get the answer 1 and one-third. 10 out of 10 for alien mathematics. Yeah, you can't doubt Klaatu, man. I mean, if he can get from, like, 250 miles from space, I'm going to rely on his mathematics skills better than the experts. All I know is that, <laughs> is, that, that all I know is that is still simpler than what they're trying to teach kids today. The exactly, the new math. math. Oh, yes. Every time I, I peek at what they're doing, it makes no sense to me. It's, it's, it's like it's 16, so foreign. It's, it's <laughs> very challenging. I... I, I like okay, so I, I don't have, think I, I would have passed. Math. I have friends who are teachers, and like, no, it totally makes sense. And I'm like, I'm glad it makes sense to you, and I'm hoping it's making sense to the kids because yeah. this is alien to me. I'm going to trust and respect in their expertise <laughs> on the matter, but it's definitely looking at exactly. it like this, I is, have, this is all claw two to me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can someone give me an alien in here? Excuse me. <laughs> the British radar man says it's moving at four thousand miles per hour. Then says it must be a buzz bomb. As a British radar man, he'd known that the buzz bomb only flew at 360 miles per hour. 75% were shot down by the English Air Force. And in fact, like... They were shot down. Yeah. But the crazy part is, like, just to get out of orbit, we have to go 26,000 miles an hour yeah. up in the air just to get out of orbit. And then another thousands of miles to travel through space. A colonel orders his troops to block off all streets intersecting Connecticut Avenue along a line from Wisconsin to the park. Connecticut Avenue and Wisconsin Avenue do not ever intersect. They don't understand. He's a really bad commander. That's not a plot hole. He's just really <laughs> bad at his job. <laughs> After the electricity is neutralized, we see a motorcycle cop trying to start his motorcycle, and the traffic light on the left side of it, the shot is lit. I like to pretend through all those scenes, though. They're just constantly trying to get these things started for the whole half hour. Yeah. <laughs> That's why like, his leg must be so tired this half hour of just constantly trying to start the motorcycle. <laughs> As Klaatu is descending the ramp from the spaceship and makes it onto the grass, he reaches for the metallic device that can help mankind understand the other planets and people. Once Klaatu clicks the device open, he imme- he's immediately shot and the device flies out of his hand as he collapses onto the ground. Although it looks as if the shot hits Klaatu's hand and device, the actual wound appears near his shoulder. I always did find that actually discrepancy a little confusing. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. In Klaatu's hospital room, the light switch is on the wrong side of the door. Normally, the light switch would be on the same side as the doorknob so the light could be turned on as you entered the room. It's a super secret containment room for an alien. That's <laughs> excuse. I'm going to justify everything in this movie. Don't worry. <laughs> during the montage shots of newspapers' uh, headlines during the hunt for Klaatu, a photograph shows him standing on his ship holding out the viewing device, which was shot out of his hand. During the earlier scene of his emergence from the saucer, he didn't produce the device until leaving the ramp and approaching the onlookers. Side note, the Hunter Plateau is going to appear on ABC this fall. <laughs> That's the only joke I had, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> in the side shot of Drew Pearson's telecast, the television camera trained on him is seen dollying back, but the image of Pearson in his monitor shows no such movement. Drew Pearson's desk doesn't have any pins on it when he starts his broadcast. There are two pins directly in front of him on the desk when the camera angle changes back. Alien pins. <laughs> the disappearing pin. You must have had the Joker there. Yeah. Would you like to see a trick? <laughs> UFD. Unidentified flying pins. <laughs> Bobby's room is clearly shown to be at the top of the staircase, and Helen's room is down the hall. However, in the shot where Helen is seen getting her coat from her room to go out with Tom to the movies, the top of the staircase can be clearly seen just outside of her door when it's shown... Or it should be down the hall and much further away from her room. 
In the scene showing the arrival of the military, Klaatu's injury, and the eradication of the weapons, the shadows of the military equipment, spaceship, and actors change radically. The first shadows shown of the tanks are long, as at the time of the day were either very early morning or more likely late afternoon. Then when Klaatu leaves the ship, he throws a fairly short uh, shadow, such as one showing within an hour or two of noon. The tanks and Gortz uh, also shows the short shadows. When Gortz starts to destroy the tank and weapons, the shadows are still indicating that it's perhaps 2 p.m. When he finishes a few moments later, the shadows are long and drawn out like they were at the beginning of the scene. In movie time, no more than 10 to 30 minutes have passed, whilst the shadows say it's more like half a day. Or maybe Klaatu took six hours just to crawl down the land. <laughs> <and> <laughs> just slowly, really yeah. slowly. And everybody's like... Uh, <laughs> it was a great dissipation. That's why they were so slow exiting that sped up, you know, run out. They're <laughs> so really tired. Klaatu arranges to have the electromagnetic fields neutralized from 12 p.m. to 12.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. Yet it is clearly broad daylight in every country in which people are struggling with inoperative devices. In Asia and the Middle East, it should have been nightfall during this time frame. Another fact I noticed too, yeah. She's like, why isn't it night anywhere? Why asleep? There's it's only like everywhere. a handful of movies that when they look at all the different, like something that affects the world and they go through different all the different nations, a lot of movies make the mistake of like, it's daytime everywhere. And it's then like some Batman. Of, that yeah, Batman. Batman it was like, it was daytime like, hey, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's always the same time in the world. When the sun is up, it is up. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that that's a common mistake. Even in serious movies, they're like, oh, they missed that. It Even really in modern films, they don't take that into consideration yeah. or they just ignore it entirely. You know, intentionally, I mean. Like, ah, they won't notice. Yeah. <laughs> I notice. When Helen and Klaatu are going to the professors, the army states that their cab is heading northwest on Connecticut at Columbia Road. The cab then passes under the DuPont Circle underpass on Connecticut Avenue. The underpass is south on Columbia Road, not north. Also, if the professor lives near the State Department, they are going the wrong direction. The State Department offices are south of Columbia Road. Washington is just a really disorganized place, and that yeah. commander is very bad at his job. <laughs> well, as you know, this was all filmed on the studio lots in California. It's, so. Exactly. It's all fiction. Truth is a lie, and the cake is not real. <laughs> as a spaceship races across the world, scenes of successful radio announcers or people listening to them are shown, apparently in order of their broadcast. When the BBC announcer in England is shown delivering his broadcast, the clock behind him reads 8.33 p.m. The next shot shows radio commentator H.V. Kaltenborn doing his broadcast from Washington to The clock behind him reads 3.24. Since Washington is five hours behind London, assuming the broadcasts were indeed shown in order, then Kaltenborn's clock should have read no later than 3.33, and probably a minute or more later than that. Mm. Details. We will find the details. Exactly. There's a lot of time travel involved in the <laughs> still. Who would guess? <laughs> oh. Look, Terrence, you're in this movie. The Yay. fat man running, crying... <laughs> They landed in the mall is wrong. The like, mall is a long time. Hey, I'm the least fat, fat guy. I could pick on the guests or I'm not going to pick on myself. <laughs> the mall is a long, relative narrow strip of land stretching from the Capitol building and the Washington Monument. Yet Klaatu sets his saucer down in a square field with the south face of the White House clearly visible at the edge of the frame. Furthermore, there are three baseball diamonds present. There are no baseball diamonds at that location. It's the 50s. Who cares? <laughs> Kids set it up and let it go. <laughs> when the government agents and later Helen and Tom pull in their cars in front of 1412 Harvard Street Northwest, where Klaatu is staying, the street is at a 45-degree angle just a couple houses down, then strains out in front of the house. While 1412 Harvard Street Northwest is now an apartment building, Harvard Street is and has always been straight in the 1400 block. So we're just going to... 
They didn't have Google Earth back I'm then. curious if like people will notice these discrepancies immediately when watching the film, or if like it's like literally going down. It's like, wait, let's pull up the well, maps wonder, here. And but see. I wonder if you're in Washington, you know. Yeah, if you lived and worked there, I'm sure you'd DC. notice. Yeah, but like, you'd most like, other people, though, it's yeah, just like, like okay, knowing the geography of Washington, D.C., who would ever notice that? Nobody. You know? <laughs> even I lived there for like six months, had no idea about any you of these know, things. I, I can't even... I don't even know if the Shire was correct because I've exactly never been to the Shire. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interrupting it's the world. Eleven. Go ahead. Well, it's interrupting the world's electricity with stop cars that run on gasoline. It would not affect the diesel vehicles since their engines use compression to run and not an electrical spark. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over that. That's 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 valid. Okay. Just after Clatu is shot and is in the hospital, he is visited by government official. Clatu states he has traveled five of your Earth months. And 250 million of your Earth miles. 250 million miles would put his starting point between Mars and Jupiter, depending on where you measure. At the far end of the scale, Mars itself can get 250 miles from Earth. 250 million miles. From yes, million miles. 250 miles. Would be <laughs> 250 cool. miles. Like that'd be terrifying hey, every day. <laughs> me driving to Louisville. I jumped too high. I floated to Mars. Uh, me driving to work and back. <laughs> Gravity's always confused. <laughs> exactly. If temporarily uh, stopping another one. <laughs> if temporarily stopping the world's electricity cut off all communications, there would be no way the mil- meeting of military generals would know that the hospitals and planes in flight weren't affected. That's why I imagine they all have torches up of mountains like they have in that one episode of Lord yeah. of the Rings. And just, that's how they communicated. <laughs> just a very good smoke pattern. Light the beacons. Just <laughs> <laughs> a great scene that movie they had. Not all vehicles would have been stopped by the power. Oh, not all vehicles would have been stopped by the power. Diesel engine vehicles, particularly at that time, didn't need electricity to run. This would also explain why a boat can be seen moving in one shot. Power wind. During the power outage, one of the scenes of a city avenue has a sign which is blinking. <laughs> Ding! Open 24-7. Uh, Bobby and Clatu visit the grave of Bobby's dad whilst at, uh, while at, uh, still at Arlington National Cemetery. They decide to go to the movies that afternoon. That evening, while uh, back at the boarding house, Bobby tells his mom, We went to the movies and got ice cream cones, and then we went to see Daddy. Aw. When Klaatu visits Dr. Barnhart in the evening, there is a small piece of paper pinned to one side of the blackboard, the left side. On the paper, seen briefly, do not erase. A few moments later in the same scene, there is no paper pinned to the side of the blackboard. Again, in the same scene, the paper is back very briefly, but just as before, disappeared almost immediately. So the pen from the desk came from. Yeah. Yeah. When Klaatu and Helen are first struck in, are stuck in the elevator, Klaatu asks Helen for the time. She tells him that it's noon. He tells her that they would be stuck or uh, stuck uh, for about another 10 minutes. When the power comes back on, he says it must be 12.30. I mean, I should know that they would be stuck for 30 minutes unless he was telling it was a white light to help keep Kellen calm. Also, it's never noted that actually he didn't like stop the watches on everybody's you know, on right. everyone's wrists. So like, why would the wristwatch even work? They would all be half an hour back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Some suggest it's impossible for Klaatu to learn handwriting via radio. However, TV broadcast is also a form of radio wave. In some long shorts of Gort walking, wrinkles in the legs of the costume are clearly visible. However, it could be argued that coming from another planet, Gort is made from a very flexible kind of metal that is completely unknown to Earth. Fair enough. Or foam. Yeah. It's metal foam. (laughs) The future is now. (laughs) Klaatu states that his people have given their interstellar police, robots like Gort, absolute power in matters of aggression. He says that their power cannot be revoked. Yeah, Klaatu overrides Gort when he stops him from melting more of the tanks and weapons at the beginning of the film, right after Klaatu is shot. However, Gort's power to destroy a planet is clearly a weapon of last resort, one that would be used only if a certain criteria were met. Surely Klaatu's peace-loving civilization wouldn't be programmed uh, Gort to eradicate the Earth on the provocation of a single pistol shot. 
also interesting enough, like it's probably like the least explored sci-fi concept of the uh, of this movie and the the genre as a whole is like a robot dictatorship. Yeah, <laughs> Which right. is just like you know, like or or like being po- or it being um, shown in a positive light. Like here, it's shown like, oh yeah, that actually like it's not perfect, but it works. Whereas like every other show about robot dictatorship is like Terminators or oh, some I other. Know. Oh, that like, I Robot, I Robot too. Also yeah. the same thing. You're just like it, the robots are always going to take over and destroy the world or enslave society. Where here, it's just like no, we we have freedoms. We just also have a robot that will definitely not let us hurt anyone else. <laughs> Though Klaatu is supposed to have shut down the electricity in London, a boat is seen going by. This same uh, error occurs in the 2008 remake. But other notes mention that diesel engines would not be affected by Klaatu's electrifying milling process. So they were really original to the captain. Exactly, even the mistakes, the cues. When Klaatu asked Mr. Harley if he could speak to the United Nations about his mission, Harley knows that they could call a special session of the General Assembly, but warns Klaatu that the United Nations doesn't represent all the nations. After which, he and Klaatu completely abandons the idea of using the UN as a forum. However, the UN has always allowed observers from non-member states and organizations to attend the sessions, although they may not speak or vote. So there was absolutely no reason why the UN could not have been used for such an extraordinary purpose as hearing Klaatu's proposal. There's also no good reason why Klaatu couldn't just tell somebody like he did with Helen early, like later in the film. <laughs> just yeah. like, you just could have told somebody and they would have gotten around, I'm sure. <laughs> In the shots from behind of Gort carrying first uh, Helen and later Klaatu in the, to the spaceship, the people being carried are clearly dummies, or rather one dummy that's dressed uh, first in Helen's and later Klaatu's clothing. At the beginning, H.V. Caterborn mentions the beautiful spring weather in the nation's capital, but find out later that it is July. Klaatu sees a dry cleaner's receipt on his suit dated 7-18-1951. In spite of the spring and summer references, when Klaatu and Billy walk around Washington, many of the trees are still bare as they had yet to regain their leaves. Kind of interesting too, it's like going to the cemetery though, having those uh, trees being bare and limb kind of represents death in a way that I, I I found it actually it adhered to the scene well enough where I didn't challenge it in my head. Like I didn't it didn't like like oh why are these trees bare if it's supposed to be summer? But then like if they're going to a cemetery, it makes sense for trees to be dead there too, yeah. dead people. <laughs> when really, so every cemetery you go to, there's dead trees. It's always a sad summer scene. <laughs> Usually it's raining, and Wolverine's there drinking a flask. It's, it's very awkward. <laughs> then you have that one. Gentleman who's always hanging back from whatever funeral <laughs> mysteriously. Exactly. You know he's connected. Yeah, yeah. Know and then he always has the grass. Like, I there. just want to cut the grass. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when Gord goes to collect Klaatu, he passes Helen as he walks uh, to the door of the central room in the spaceship. While it looks like a large tear can be seen in the front of his otherwise solid looking left leg. In the shot of London during the power age, there are moving shadows near the lower right corner of the screen, but nothing moving is casting the shadows. After Klaatu is shot, blood is seen on his shoulder, but when he's actually shot, not only is there no sign of him being hit in the shoulder, the device he's carrying is blasted out of his hand, and his physical reactions clearly are those of someone just shot in the hand or wrist. Not to mention that the device is found shot apart. Damage that could not have happened uh, to it just like this from falling into the grass and had had Klaatu been hit in the shoulder. Gort's ray makes a jagged, irregular shape on the prison wall, but any form of energy weapon should produce a perfectly round hole. When Klaatu returns to the ship at night to contact his people, Gord is shown from the front after he knocked out uh, the two soldiers. There is no way, or there is no cutaway as Gord turns to open the ship's ramp for Klaatu, and the zipper in the back of the rubber suit can be plainly seen as Gord walks towards the ship before he turns around to face it again. Hmm. Remember, XYZ, zip that thing up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when Gort picks up Helen and begins walking towards the spaceship, the closures on the front of the co- Gort costume are clearly visible. 
Klaatu may have come from a civilization 250 million miles away, but those diamonds in his pocket had the classic round, brilliant cut of planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) When Gort begins marching down the ship's ramp at the beginning, a shot shows the crowds running away in panic. The shot is clearly a speeded-up film of the crowd, mostly of whom were plainly walking away from the scene rather leisurely. Also, when the shot switches back to the retreating military men, the crowd can be seen still standing behind them, not having moved at all. Mm. When the spaceship seen as a glowing white disc is tracked down uh, from across the sky in Washington City it passes a flagpole atop a building as the ship is supposed to be in the background the flagpole should remain in full view as the ship passes behind it but a close look shows that the disc briefly blots out part of the pole as it passes due to an error where the disc was optically printed onto the film the effect makes it seem as if a tiny ship had just passed in front of, a, of the flagpole it's an alien ship, man. Things will happen. Also, like, you got to think of, like, going centrifugal force of hundreds of miles an hour, which would probably throw that flag everywhere. Speaking of, you know, aliens, did you guys ever see Mars Attacks? Yes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> man. One of Jack Black's finest works. <laughs> At the beginning of the time electricity is out, we see a taxi cab rolling to a stop. However, right behind him is a black car accelerating to catch him and pull up behind. After taking Helen on the spaceship as Gord is leaving, you can briefly see the costume lacing on his left leg and chest. When the military are trying to cut through the metal of the spaceship, you can clearly see a square of asbestos material ta- uh, taped to the ship, presumably to protect the wooden spaceship from the flame of the cutting <laughs> torch. Oh, wow. It's great. <laughs> After Helen tells Gork, Klaatu Barata Nikto, he picks her up and carries her to the ship. The- these were are, There were only two Gort suits. One laced up from the front for back shots, the other laced up uh, from the uh, Side front for- from the shots. Well, this one's saying from the back and from the front. The scene used the one scene with uh, laced up from the front. Since Gord is shot from the side, we barely can see the laces up in the front where Helen's head is against his chest. So two to three costumes, two to three costumes, and another guy was like, "Could be oh, four. I imagine only one person was just really obsessed with Gord's zipper. That's what I'm imagining. Yeah. This one person's like, "I gotta know about that Gord too." <laughs> Link, uh, Katu and Bobby first go to find Professor Barnhart's home. They go to his patio doors, leading to his study. The corner of the house where they uh, are has alternating bricks, but every other brick is the same length on both sides, meaning it would have to be a square brick, showing that it's just a set. Klaatu is shot in his left shoulder, yet we see his, uh, him wounded on the ground and leaning against his left side with his left hand on the ground. This would have been too painful, and instinctively, Klaatu would not have leaned on the side he was shot. When Gord picks up Helen, she is wearing shiny black high-heeled shoes, and the scenes immediately before, such as when she had knelt down by Klaatu's side after he had been shot, she was wearing low-heeled matte finish shoes. Of course, she would not have had time to change her shoes in between. In the final scene, Gord alternately stands, uh, stands with his feet together and apart between shots. The newspaper article headlined, Step Up or Step Up Hunt for Spaceman, is accompanied by a photograph of Klaatu and Gord on the spaceship's hull, which is still, which is a still from the end of the movie. Hmm. When Helen is taken into the spaceship and is sitting on the bench, her right hand is alternately be by her side or behind her back between shots. Flywires can be seen holding up Helen Benson as Gore begins to carry her towards the spacecraft. I love when you can see the old wires and the old, these oh, yeah, old movies, especially like the spaceships with the string. You know? Yeah, it's, it's always so classic. You know what's not fun is watching a newer movie and seeing all those little things. Right. But you ever wonder, like, I don't believe in aliens, but if there were aliens and they're watching one of these films, they're like, what are they doing to us? You know, like, yeah. this is or so what if this terrible. is like the one piece of culture that got out to an alien world? Yeah. Like, wow, Wait, that's what they think of us, huh? It's our first reaction. <laughs> Why would we look exactly like them? 
I'm not gray. Yeah. <laughs> a photograph shows the famous publicity still with Gort to the left of the photo and helmet-clad Klaatu to the right and slightly behind his robot waving at the crowd. This never happened. Gort only came out after his master was shot down. Therefore, at this point in the movie, both aliens were not seen together on the vessel for that photograph to be taken. Additionally, at the end of the movies, Klaatu is not wearing his helmet when he waves goodbye to Helen and Gort has long disappeared inside the spaceship. However, this being the 1950s, the current journalistic truth and media standards had not yet been adopted. So it's generally possible, in fact, probable, that the newspaper simply took various photographs of Klaatu, the gizmo in his hand, Gort in the spaceship, and composited them together to produce the image used. This was a widespread and accepted practice among newspapers at the time, most notoriously in the 1920s. And while very few respectable mainstream newspapers regarded such photo tampering, even today's tabloids like the Weekly World News still employs similar methods. To knock on the Weekly World News, don't follow them, I guess. <laughs> don't right. tell me that Bat Boy's not real. <laughs> <laughs> Bat Boy's always been real in my heart. <laughs> uh, when Gort moves behind the wall to pick up Helen, the frame shifts uh, slightly. This was because director Robert Wise stopped the camera and moved into uh, a rig to hold Patricia Neal and start again, as Logmarn could not do it on his own. And with that, we're going to go ahead and move into opinions. Terrence, we'll start All right. with you. So, uh, as I stated before, um, this is a movie I haven't watched in a very long time, so I remember snippets and stuff. Uh, on the list of movies I'm going to watch uh, after the fact, unfortunately. You're but be from busy what I, for a long time catching up all the movies you got to watch. <laughs> it's only a handful. I have watched most, most of these. Um, my favorite one uh, that I haven't watched, though, that I went to watch is, is Batman, just because I love that corny humor. But back to the <laughs> source of what we're doing right now. Um, I would say because it is a big name in sci-fi, uh, to give it a watch. And, you know, it was on two movies. That's not by or two movie listings of, you know, uh, most popular movies, most must-see before you die movies. Uh, that's not by mistake, right? So uh, I'd say give it a watch. From what I remember, it was a good movie. Um, and it's... Uh, as you probably hear from the other two, you know it's 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 iconic. It's got iconic things that people reference it all the time. So I would say watch the movie if you haven't already, which you should. Have. Wait, did we we warmed open this episode last episode, right? We did what? Did we warm up, open this one? Uh, warm at the, open. Warm open, as in like uh, at the end of the last episode, did we say, "Hey, we're going to do this no. movie"? Okay, so you did not. No, this said, this said, episode is another cold I said, open. Depending on that's right people's schedules, and I hadn't contacted. That's right. That's Kyle right. So, yet, so okay, so this movie is another cold open. So if you haven't watched it, uh, do give it a watch. Uh, yeah, and that's but what I did. I'm put, do. I did put on Facebook that we were doing it, so it is in the Facebook group that, that we is were true. doing it. So. so it's your fault if you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this guy; he's a regular. Um, but I, so we'll go ahead and, is that all you had? Yeah, that's that's what I got. All right, Kyle. Yeah. So this I is your say, baby. Go for it. This is my baby. Absolutely. I, so I, I'm in complete agreement with Terrence. I think it's one of the seminal classic sci-fi films, and uh, like one of the things that's just almost mandatory viewing if you're a fan of the genre at all, because there's so much of a lineage behind it. Of like every single scene has um, inspir- has um, future inspirations from it um, that really just go and show that this film was uh, the most one of the most influential things going forward. And uh, Klaatu brought a Nick Toe is an incredible line <laughs> that sounds so Do you know what that means? Um, no, I don't know. It has no meaning. What has, it was completely made up. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the best way you do it because he's an alien and it means tells the court to not be mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, um, but truly uh, just exploring spirituality in sci-fi is an interesting facet that not many sci-fi films are willing to do and it's interesting that one of the most popular films really went far in there by having Klaatu um, 
being calling himself Major Carpenter to relate to Jesus Christ and uh, other aspects is just very interesting and compelling to see how uh, we relate to divinity and power. And it's just interesting explorations in that. Right. So I love that film altogether. That's so, nice. so here's a question for you. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we have some viewers that aren't big on sci-fi. I mean, there's always someone who's not like, you know, too big on sci-fi for one reason or another. Uh, would you have this as a recommendation for someone who's not into sci-fi? Um, as a social commentary about trying to diffuse tensions in the world, um, specifically through the, and this is a Cold War film, absolutely about um, diffusing America and Russia, which just can be seen as uh, important today now, even. Yeah. And uh, so it's worth a watch, just trying to understand like how how much we've how far we've come and how little we've changed in the same aspects. Like one of the um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie now, which has kind of changed because of the modern times, is um, after Klaatu gets shot. And it gets taken to the hospital. The um, the doctors go like, "Hey, uh, this guy has a similar set of lungs, missing a similar set of atmosphere." And then it's like, "Oh yeah, he's talking about his health. He told me he was like seventy two years old or how old he was." And then it's like, "Yeah, they must have they just have better medicine than that." And as he's saying that, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and hands it to the other guy. They just have better medicine than we do. And they've seen the light cigarettes. <laughs> like I feel like a third world rich doctor. And it's gonna be, like shows how far we've come. Where now we see Klaatu's perspective that like no, their medicine really was bad for the time. <laughs> and our Medicine's come a lot further now, and understanding of uh, cigarettes is definitely mature. So it's basically, if you come in to the movie watching it under a different lens, you might enjoy it un- past the prospect of it being a sci-fi movie. Exactly. There's so much to see about society then and how it relates to us now that is um, also compelling and totally worth watching, even if you're not a fan of science fiction itself. I would definitely hold her at least support that. <laughs> Solid. Yeah, I love this movie. Um Again, it's one. This and World of the Worlds are two that I remember the most. Uh, the sci-fi, and uh, it goes to show you that it's such a beloved movie that they wanted to remake it. Um, I think a lot of the classics that they they feel like were good movies, they sometimes ruin them. To you know, they ruined my childhood with Transformers and uh, <laughs> you know GI Joe, but we won't go there. But uh, oh, GI Joe, uh, Michael yeah. Bay hates your childhood. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. I was just like, when it comes uh, down to. So well, let me tell you about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, <laughs> stop, stop. Um, I think we purposely avoided that topic when we did Turtles. <laughs> but we did talk about the ninjas. Yeah, we didn't know that. <laughs> that's the lo- the longest I've heard you laugh during this whole entire podcast. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, definitely give it a watch. Um, even if you just like it for the cheesy cheesy view because it is a different time different era where you know different cameras used um, but it's a great story has a lot of innuendos in it um, very very good well done so uh, with that being said I think this episode is coming to a close uh, you can reach us out on any of the podcast outlets that you get your podcast from uh, we can be reached if you want to send an email uh, the tragedy of cinema at gmail.com uh, we also have a Facebook group, the Face, uh, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group. Uh, you can search for us there, answer a little question, and you'll be on your way. Um, also, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, even if you don't have an iTunes account, you can download it, leave us a review, then delete it off your device if you would like. Five stars would be great. <laughs> Five stars would be great. If you liked our guest today, he, he thought about coming back doing some more sci-fi, let us know. We'll let him pass it on to him. I work with the guy, so. I like myself. I hope you do, too. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. So, so all the older generations it's like, oh, we don't like that guy. Millennials all the millennials are like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Watch him make an effort we to are, make the next I think we are getting me. ready to sit down. <laughs> if Terrence can stay awake, we are getting ready to record the first episode of Real Talk. Yep. 
Um, so stay tuned for that. We're going to be talking about all kinds of crazy stuff in that episode. I can only imagine where it's going to go if you listen to this episode. So uh, with that being said, uh, I think that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut.